I think that's great time for innovation and doing things differently. I sit on the board of Salesforce and Visa, and one of the cool things about Visa is you can see the economies around the world either spiking or shrinking, and you can see who's winning. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. For a bunch of years, I used to go to Stanford University and teach in their executive program for boards of directors. I know the program was great, but the participants were even greater. There were senior executives and CEOs and presidents and board members, all of whom wanted to get better at being board members. And now there's two things I want to say about them and the actual program. Number one, this might come as a bit of a shock to anyone who doesn't pay attention to these things, but it turns out that most boards of directors are not particularly effective at doing their jobs. The job of the board of directors is to make sure the CEO is running the company as well as can reasonably be done. Their job is to hire and fire CEOs, to provide oversight on strategy, to pay a lot of attention to financial issues and enterprise risk, and absolutely avoid the stories that created Enron and lots of others like that. Now, of course, they try to do that, but it turns out that board members have a particular characteristic that makes it sometimes rather difficult for them to do their job properly. And that characteristic is that they are human. That's right. That means that they want to be liked by the CEO. They want to be respected by their fellow board members. And above all else, given all of their success and their reputation, they do not want to look bad in the face of their peers. And if you look bad in the face of your peers, you lose a ton of credibility. Therefore, they'd rather stay silent and not ask the question that probably a lot of people are thinking of. The question about why are we doing this and how are we accounting for that and where we need to be when it comes to our ethics and compliance and lots of other things. So it's really kind of amazing because when you don't ask those tough questions, when you don't challenge other people, and when you're really afraid to do what is your job, you don't do a good job at it. And the fact that they're so accomplished and so capable that gets them on the board in the first place makes it all the more ironic. So, you know, the social and almost psychological dynamic that takes place among a group of board members that are otherwise very highly intelligent and capable, that they actually let their CEO sometimes sit back and not do what they should be doing. That's how you get Enron and WorldCom and lots of others. So I had a great time at the Stanford program because we talk about this and I would ask them and I would say, you know, if something doesn't seem right, what do you do about it? And do you speak up? If you think you're the only one that has a point of view that is maybe contrary to what others are thinking, will you speak up? Will you say something about it? And I say, I put them on the spot because some of them will admit they're not comfortable doing that, but that's really their job, isn't it? But it goes back to this point that board members are human, they're people. And most of us, you know, we don't want to look dumb. We want to look good in front of our friends, our peers, our colleagues. And we want to make sure that we're not the only one that's out there. You know, we need that social connection across other people. We want to believe that other people are on our side. And that's what makes it difficult to be the maverick, be the person that goes their own way. And the world changes in a positive way because of those mavericks. You know, the Bill Gates and the Elon Musks of the world, to be sure, obviously Steve Jobs. But on a board of directors, you got to have somebody like that. Which brings me to my guest on today's episode of the SIDCast, Maynard Webb. And he is someone, when I talk about, you know, the participants that came to these executive programs at Stanford, he is the one that is exactly opposite to what I just described. 
described. He is the one that is unafraid to say what be said. And he does it in such a natural, smooth, acceptable way that you can communicate effectively. You know, I always say that it's your job as a communicator. If you can get your point across to the person you're communicating to or with, whether that's someone who works for you, whether that's your boss, whether that's your own kid or your parent for that matter, well, that's on you. It's up to you to communicate it and be able to say what it is you want to say in a way that other people are going to get it so they act. And Maynard Webb has that skill, has that respect. And I remember one time that he was in the class, I was thinking halfway through, you know, I should sit down and let him teach because he knows a heck of a lot more about this than I do. Who is Maynard Webb? 40-year veteran of the tech industry, very active in tech and business community. He's a board member. He's an investor. He is a philanthropist. And he is a mentor to many young entrepreneurs. He founded the Web Investment Network, W-I-N, Web Investment Network, which is a seed investment firm where they do make investments like other venture capitalists do, but they also nurture entrepreneurs. And that's kind of their differentiator. In fact, anyone who wants to invest with Maynard in any of these companies that he is interested in investing. He won't take your money unless you're willing to actually mentor people at the same time. And so he brings his experience to bear and his network to bear in developing and leading and helping entrepreneurs develop and lead high growth companies. He's on the board of directors today of Salesforce, which is a gigantic and successful company, and Visa. He was a chairman of the board at Yahoo, and he was the CEO of a handful of companies as well. He's worked with Marissa Mayer from Yahoo. He's worked with Meg Whitman at eBay. He was the COO, chief operating officer at eBay when Meg Whitman was the CEO. So he has uh, incredible experience. If that wasn't enough, he's the author of two best-selling books, Rebooting Work, Transform How You Work in the Age of Entrepreneurship, and more recently, Dear Founder, Letters of Advice for Anyone Who Leads, Manages, or Wants to Start. Start a business. In 2004, Maynard and his wife created the Webb Family Foundation, which provides underprivileged, motivated young people access to quality education and supports them in really struggling against the odds to make a positive impact in the world through innovation, through hard work. And I invited Maynard to talk to my own MBA students at the Tuck School not long after I had uh, met him. And what a treat that was for students and for me as well. And for Maynard, who really loves to kind of engage and contribute and help. And, you know, one of the best things that I get to do is talk to people like Maynard and in the classroom and sometimes on the podcast, such as this episode. And I get to learn. I get to learn a lot. And it's very, very fortunate that I do that. And today I'm able to bring that to you. I hope and expect that you'll be able to dig your teeth into this episode and learn all sorts of things. We covered a lot of ground, as I always like to do in these podcasts, about boards of directors, yes, about business leadership, but also what it really means to be a leader in 2020 in the world and in America that's confronted with unprecedented challenges because of the pandemic and, of course, because of the slowly permeating understanding among a wider set of people, maybe wider than ever before, of what the black experience in America is actually like. We talk about all this with Maynard. He has a strong point of view, and he's also putting his money where his mouth is in helping. The hallmarks of a great leader are often humility and empathy. And these are things that I found that inexperienced leaders often don't, they don't really get it. It sounds too soft or beside the point. We got to just drive success. We got to hit the numbers. We got to make a lot of money. And they push and they push and they might be successful in the short term, but most of them are not successful in the long term. Empathy and humility turn out to be gigantic differentiators. You know, the hard driving CEO might align with things we see on TV when we watch shows like Billions or Suits or even some speeches or press conferences of some political leaders these days. But what they're really doing is glorifying arrogance. 
And arrogance is not what enables anyone to build a long-lasting, impactful business, which makes a conversation with Maynard Webb all the more valuable in our world today. Here's Maynard Webb. Welcome to the SIDCast, and I'm here with Maynard Webb, and a real pleasure to talk to you and kind of learn about your world. How are you, Maynard? I'm doing great, as great as you can be in 2020. So, yeah. That's right. All considered, we're all struggling. I've done a few episodes during COVID and, and we'll talk about it a little bit as well from you know what you're seeing, but nothing is the same. And, um, you know, Once again, I'm in my SIDCast headquarters in my dining room and <laughs> that's just the way it works. <laughs> so Maynard, let's kind of talk a little bit about your background. You know, you're obviously so accomplished and have done so many and continue to do so many interesting things, but it's a story that starts in, I guess, a lot more uh, humble way. And I was wondering whether you could talk about you know what it was like to grow up as a kid. I guess you grew up in Florida and I know your dad died when you were quite young, I think when you were seven, and that had to have had a big impact. What are some of your earliest memories growing up and of your dad as well? Well, I, we were very, very blessed when I was very little. My dad owned his own company, and we moved from Coral Gables, where I was born, up to West Palm Beach, Florida. And I can remember vividly going in and picking my dad up. We only had one car, but we would go pick him up every night at the end of his day. And he was pretty sickly. He had had a heart attack early, actually the day my younger sister was born. But he found a way to work every day, and then on uh, 10 days before my seventh birthday, he passed away right in front of me from a stroke. And we went from being not, we weren't well off, but we were definitely upper middle class, you know, not wanting for anything to not having, had no life insurance. And we went to, oops, we have no money. And my mom <laughs> found a way to go back to work. But the biggest loss was not the money. It was my dad, right? And I just resolved then to make sure that I never left my kids in the same situation. And so it was a life that I had lots of great people that coached me and gave me advice and were willing to make bets on me, which I realized I wasn't underprivileged, but I thought of myself as underprivileged after that happened. And so I had sports and I had school and I tried to do well in both. And I just went to work pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. In school, I was a paper boy and worked after football practice and everything else. So I was always working, went from there. So can I ask you, you said, you know, your dad, you were there, you were in front of him or in the same room, I guess. He had just gotten, he was a big sports fan like I am and he hated the Yankees and they had. Oh, oh boy. Oh boy. Okay. Disclaimer yeah. now. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And he just watched them win the world series with Bobby Richardson hitting a ball over the second baseman's head, beat the giants in 1962 and mom made dinner, and she goes, go wake up, Dad. So I opened, you know, I said, Dad, got time for dinner. And he said, okay, I'll be right there. And he opened the door and just fell right in front of me and smacked his head open. And so that's my uh, little, that, that you know, kind of lasts a lifetime when you remember. You never forget. You cannot possibly forget that. And, you know, in the last 20 years, there are a lot of people that have gone through traumatic and that had to have been for a seven-year-old kid, a traumatic experience. We understand a lot more about that and people get a lot more help for those things, you know, therapy and family counseling and all sorts of things. I don't know whether that was the case, you know, back in the 60s, though. No, no. (laughs) You're laughing. (laughs) I guess it wasn't. No, my mom woke me up the next morning. My mom's a rock star and she's my hero, but she woke me up the next morning and she goes, dad passed away and the older two kids are crying. I don't want you to cry. So, you know, 
well, you got to help me. So that's <laughs> that's about the amount of grief that we were able to have is like get yeah, back to work. Get back to work. And so you were pretty enterprising from a young age and you went off to college, I think Florida Atlantic, I think. Was that right? Yeah, well, I actually, I got appointed to Annapolis and which my mother was thrilled with. And I went to school at a small prep school up in Connecticut for a postgraduate year in order to get through Congress to get appointed and played football up in Connecticut, which is very similar to where you are. And yeah, uh, Leafy Town. And yeah, there are a lot of prep schools that, so this was like an extra year? Yeah, I had a post graduate and played football and baseball at the Gunnery in Washington, Connecticut. I don't know wow. if ever. I haven't been there, but I know the kind of the prep school world, and there are yeah. a lot of talented kids, especially kids in sports interest for college that come yeah. in for a postgraduate year. I never knew about it till I saw that. And I said, wow, yeah. that's pretty clever, actually. Anyway, yeah. go, go ahead. So what happened? And then I got appointed to Annapolis, but I decided not to go, which drove my mother crazy because it was a free education. And so I just came back and worked full time and went to college and graduated. From- Maynard, why didn't you go to Annapolis? I mean, that's pretty good. It was the early 70s. And I had grown, had I gone right out of high school, I think it would have been fine. But I went up to Connecticut where I was on my own and found more girls and long hair back when I had hair. And it just didn't feel like what I wanted to do. It was a long commit. So I said no and came home and worked full time and went to school full time and got out in three years and three and a half years and got hired by IBM. And that's when I got my start. Got it. And so what did you do at IBM? What was that first job? I mean, do you remember when remember. you had an interview? And what was it like? My first job was actually a co-op job, an intern. When I was in my senior year, I got a job at Boca Raton as a security guard. And they were perfectly clear that said, this will never turn into a permanent job. We have no openings, so don't count on this. Well, I thought IBM was a great place and that I could learn a lot. So I didn't want to take that advice. And so they gave me an offer to be a security guard as my first job out of college, but it was up in Rochester, Minnesota. And so that's what my first job out of school was. I was planning to go on to law school, but they offered me a job and you made a ton of money as a security guard. I'll be honest with you. Really? It was actually a problem because you made so much that often you wouldn't want to give up the overtime and the extra pay to go on to a better job, which, of course, I had to do. But you made, if you worked a Saturday, even if it was in your 40 hours, it was time and a half and Sunday was double time. If you worked a holiday, it was time and a half. If you worked second shift, it was 10%. So, you know, I had no kids. and So I could work a lot and make quite a bit of yeah. It sounds like you did the math on that real quick and realized yeah. this is not a bad gig here. <laughs> it's not a bad gig, but it's certainly not what I want to do long term. But IBM was an amazing place to be, and they encouraged you to take classes both from the company and from the school, father schools. And so I went back and learned how to program and started doing technical jobs after that. So did you move to Minnesota then? Is that what you did? Yeah, I moved to Minnesota and I uh, was quite shocked. With the different, like, I got recruited in May, you know, as you're getting out of school, and it looked pretty nice in May. And I knew that <laughs> snow, and I had been in Connecticut, but Minnesota versus Connecticut is far different for a kid that grew up in Florida. And so I was only there about nine months when they were opening the facility in Charlotte, North Carolina, and they asked for volunteers. And I was like, is it south of here? And they said, yep. So off I went. And yes. that was a great move because... We were all new and 
I got promoted to a leadership role very quickly. And that's when I got into computer security, which back then nobody wanted to do. And I wanted to do. And I kept going to my boss and asking him if I could help on that job. And he's like, you're not qualified for that. I'm like, but nobody's doing it. I'll do it. And he's like, Webb, leave me alone and go back to your job. You're doing great on what you're doing. And so I'd go in the next week and say, hey, that job's still open. And he's like, yeah, same answer, Webb. You're not qualified. I'm like, but nobody else wants to do it. Back then, computer security wasn't nearly as cool as it is today. And a lot of the systems programmers thought it was beneath them. And coming up from where I was coming from, it was a much better professional job than what I had, even though I had had several promotions. And I, I said, you know what? I'm not asking you to not do my job. I'm just asking to volunteer to help you do that new job while you find somebody. So I'll do my job and that job. And you know, you can imagine what, as a boss, what you think of somebody. With, you have to like the enthusiasm, but, you know, it's like, come on, get real. And I was blessed that there was a guy from corporate who I had done a, a few projects for, and he'd been happy with them. And he's like, he said to my boss, you know, you've had that job open for a while. Why don't you give that web kid a chance? And I think that was my big break. And I got the job. And within a few months, I was traveling all over the company. And back then, we didn't have the internet, so that you had to fly there. And basically, they would give me a week to say, see what damage you can do. And that's a fun thing. So what was the job, Mina? What did you have to Computer do? Security. So I was in charge of making sure that we followed the corporate policies in Charlotte for making sure passwords were changed, that people protected their data, all those good things. Sounds like what we worry about today. Yeah, totally. But this was way back when it was easier then because we didn't have as many, you know, you could kind of lock the doors to your facility and be safe as opposed to today when everything's all over the place. And yeah. But we also would ask people to go to another facility and do like an audit. And that's where I was able to hack into lots of different things and break things and cut checks that they didn't know about. I always gave them back. But that was quite a bit of fun, you know. Okay, that's kind of, we don't want to gloss over this one. So you were a hacker before your time. Yeah. Uh, before we even used such a thing. And was that something they asked you to do or you figured oh, yeah. that's how you could no, do no, your no. job? Yes. And it was always done ethically. Well, we still have those today, right? We have that same thing going on today. But I have to say it's quite fun because it's like solving a big puzzle with how do you actually get into something that sometimes it was just wide open and that was like easy pickings, but oftentimes it was poorly protected. And if you could find a way in, it still counted as a break. So that was fun. Then I had to start fixing things after that, unfortunately. <laughs> so why do you think, I mean, the world is so much more sophisticated now. And of course, the internet is the internet, so it's everywhere. But why do you think that we have so much serious cybercrime, endless, in my view, cybercrime, day in and day out, it seems like? And it's true in the political arenas. It's on everything. Well, yeah. everything's digital, right? I mean, there's a lot of money that moves across our networks. And if you're a crook and you can find a way to get some of that, that's easier than going into a bank and stealing it. Also, there's information and there's influence. Like what we now know is how many governments involved in all of this. Like it's a new way to fight a war as opposed to a traditional way. And so I think it's a consequence of how successful we've been in digitizing everything and making everything work. Look at the fact that we're all working from home today. Like when I started in my career, 
this would have been, you know, we didn't have even cell phones back then. Think of how we would have dealt with this pandemic in 1978 or 79 when I started. And today we can pretty much do anything we want to do at home for some jobs. Obviously, if you're running a data center, you have to be in there. If you're a nurse in a hospital, you kind of have to be in the hospital. But most things you can do from home. And that's all because the technology and the capability has expanded to let us all do so many things on so many different streams here. But that's also ripe for somebody trying to break in and hurt you. As Zoom found out, when they became so popular as we went into coronavirus land, you know, they started getting people listening in on a bunch of conversations and that were uninvited. So right. that quickly fixed that. The Zoom bombing that happened. And I was reading not that long ago about how hackers, they're watching, you know, webinars and video and all kinds of, and they see what's behind you. And that gives you clue. It gives them clues about your life. Like I'm looking behind you and I see some beautiful pictures. I don't know who they are, but I'm sure it's your family. Maybe it's your wife in there. Your book. My book. That you can hack, you could buy, you could sell, you could do anything you want. I got a garage full of those. (laughs) But it's a little scary. I mean, this podcast is, you know, obviously audio, not video, but we're looking at each other because using Squadcast, it's just a lot better to have a conversation when you can see somebody. And so you get these clues. It's, are the good guys going to win this battle ever? I would just say it's the good guys are going to win this battle, but it's hard because it's the bad guys in this case are super innovative. And it's not like I often say I'm asked as a board member what I think about cybersecurity. And I'm like, you know, when you're in accounting, when you're in the audit committee, you have an outside expert that also looks at all the financial and verifies them. When you're dealing with cybersecurity, there are people that you can get to help you. But the standards are not set. And like the accounting standards migrate and they change, but they don't change that frequently. Mm-hmm. The bad guys are the most innovative folks in the world and they change every week, every day. There's a new threat. Yet our biggest threats still are from sloppy behavior. People, you know, not patching systems that leave them open. And like, so it's just hard. So it's this mix of staying on top of it, being innovative. It's a great career for folks now. Everybody wants to be a CISO. You know, you get paid a lot of money, but it's fraught with risk. And the only way to stay ahead of it is to understand how important it is and to know you're never done and just keep on it. And you're you, know, you know, listening to how you're describing that, I can't help but think about what we are, what we know about COVID and how COVID is spreading. And it's about people being irresponsible or lazy or just not patching what they should be patching and not wearing the mask when they should be wearing them. It sounds like the same thing. It is. I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but in, you know, I live in California now and we got hit hard early and then everything got locked down very, very quickly and we contained it. And that was, you know, we were all happy about that and, you know, felt proud that we were doing well. And then we started loosening up. And I have to tell you, it's we're now in trouble. I mean, Florida, where I'm from, is in worse trouble now. And that's where my grandkids are. So that's not thrilling. But it's we are not doing well at the basics. And the government is trying to help us, you know, or guide us, but their guidance changes. Like, it's okay to start doing this. I mean, in my little hometown of Los Gatos here, they started letting people dine on the street. And they created a bunch. They shut down some of the lanes so that the restaurants could reopen. And everything's supposed to be six feet away. And wear a mask except when you're eating. But then people are walking on the sidewalk by them. And half them have no mask. Like, and I see that. 
And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And the truth is, as you said, the basics protect you on this stuff. Wear a mask, socially distance. I can't go everywhere that I usually go. And that's frustrating. But I can still do a lot of good things. Yeah, it always is about people. And, you know, we're talking about mistakes people make or the mindset. But you also talked about the hackers that are out there among the most innovative people in the world. They're a loose confederation. Some, I mean, you mentioned, you know, some are government run, but others are freelancers that might work for government or not, right? Yeah, it's an interesting organizational form, you know, compared to a regular corporation where we have, you know, the board and the CEO and the systems and the structures and the strong HR group. And this is this kind of ad hoc. It's like, you know, the, remember the old show Mission Impossible, where they pick these uh, talented people and they all go on this uh, old show. Tom Cruise <laughs> resurrected it in the last uh, 15 years. It's a different organizational system that has been created in the world of cybercrime that seems to be beating us who are following a kind of more traditional and quote unquote sophisticated ways of organizing and managing. Right. Well, they also take great pride. I can't say it wasn't fun to actually crack something and be able to get to the information or get to the money, but it was my job, so I would give it back. What they often do now is they post it for everybody else to benefit. It's like Robin Hood. Like I think they view themselves a little bit like Robin Hood as And, you know, the corporations are the bad guys and we figured out how to break in and got the keys to the kingdom here. Let me share them with you and let's see what you can do with it. So it's not just an organization. It's an ethos for some of those folks as well. Yeah. And this also brings up this question of how companies are being run today in the era of COVID and industry after industry. So many industries are in big trouble from different parts of real estate to obviously retail companies, that travel sector and airlines. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a long list. Restaurants, of course. Uh, And so the requirement to be, and universities, I should add as well, my own industry. And I feel like the requirement now for innovation has never been higher. The necessity of coming up with new ways of thinking, throwing out the old rule book, because that's not going to get us. It's proven not to get us through as a company, as an organization. But yet I find tremendous resistance. I, of course, know universities better than any of the other sectors being part of it. And I see a lot of resistance to real fundamental change. So I guess the question for you is, what are you seeing, whether it's some of the, you know, you invest in a lot of startups, so it's a different type of company and startups by definition, if they have any prayer, are going to be all about innovation and change and pivoting, et cetera. But you also have, you know, a lot of experience in very large companies and, and a wide network. So what's your assessment of how companies are adapting? I think that's great time for innovation and doing things differently. I sit on the board of Salesforce and Visa. And one of the cool things about Visa is you can see the economies around the world either spiking or shrinking. And, you know, obviously we're not used to seeing them shrink quite the way they shrank this year. And you can see who's winning, like groceries or Amazon, and you can see travel and cross-border trade just dissipate. And at Salesforce, we crafted a product called work.com. You know, you first deal with the body blow you get of, hey, this happened and this was not our map. And Salesforce did a lot to protect the people of, in the company immediately, as did Visa. And then they went into the governments aren't giving enough PPE to the workers. How do we do it? So they found a way to get the China and commandeer a couple of jets to get gear to both California and New York when we were in real trouble to help, which I was super proud of. But in the middle of that, they're like, you know what? How are we going to get everybody back to work? And how's that going to work? You're going to have to do shifts of people, probably like you were talking about with school in our you know, introduction about not all the kids can come back at right. once. 
And what's that going to look like? And you're not going to be able to have everybody in the elevator at once. And we have all these nice towers that are around the world, <laughs> Salesforce towers. How do we do that? Including a beautiful Salesforce tower. That's yeah, exactly. At the moment. And then you have, how do you check your employees and get them to volunteer? You know, some countries do that with electronics and that is very not privacy oriented. How do you get people to self-declare and what system? So they created a whole application called work.com that they launched in less than a month and a half, which would be a lot longer time frame normally. And it's actually one of the most popular potentials. We have governments, you know, like New York and California that are using that to help try to get people back to work and in the workplace. But that's an example of not just waiting for this to be over, but what can we do while we're here? And in some of our companies, I have a lot of investments. Some of them, it's crazy. I hate to even say it because they're doing so well. They're at record highs. Like Okta is a company that is in, in security and people working from home need a lot of that. And so they are selling more and their stock is generating. And then we have some that were almost ready to go public. Think of that. I'm not in Airbnb through the fund, but think of like Airbnb, where all of a sudden it doesn't feel so good to get into an Uber or go rent a home from somebody that you don't know whose business model maybe need to be tweaked, right? And then you have the vast majority of my investments where people just stop buying for a little while while they try to figure it out. And so they have to make sure they have enough cash to live to fight another day and then come out stronger as they do it. So it's a complicated, it's not like horrible for everybody. It's horrible when you're on the fault line and this hits you like in the retail space or the travel space, it's horrible without a doubt. And you've got to figure out if you can fight another day and also what tweaks to your model do you have to make? At Salesforce, we're way in the other side of that, where and Visa too will be fine, which is great because then you can think more strategically than, oh my God, I don't have enough money to pay people and keep things going. But you still have to come out stronger out of this. And like everything at Salesforce was all an event. Our whole marketing strategy, Dreamforce, the biggest you know, show of the year, we did rolling road shows, and they were all in-person events. Everywhere we went, we've had to swap all that to be all digital and change the motion. And we now do something that I would never have thought we would do. We run a weekly all-hands meeting with 50,000 people. And we're the CEO, and Mark has asked the board to attend these. And I'm like, well, I thought it was a lot to go to you know, four, five, six board meetings a year. But now I'm sitting in front of a video an hour and a half every Wednesday. And he's communicating, if anything, he's communicating so much more, but he feels he needs to because we're still hiring people. And how are they getting onboarded and how do they understand our products and how to sell, all that good stuff. So I actually think even going back to work for people will never be the same. You've seen some companies that have said you can stay home forever. I think Twitter said that just a few weeks ago. And some people saying you can stay home at least for this year. And we want you to feel safe. But I think the whole work relationship is going to change and where people live. You know, I think there's a lot of ramifications still to come from this. Yeah. Yeah. You're living in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley, which has incredible cost of living, mostly driven by real estate. And 
you don't have to live there. I mean, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> if you're working for Facebook or Google or what have you, you don't have to live there. Not right. everybody has to live there. And you could cut your living expenses probably by two thirds by moving to some parts of the country, certainly by half. And so it seems like we're letting the genie out of the bottle a little bit on this. And it's working. I mean, Again, it's not for everyone, and there are losses associated with this because there's oh. nothing like face-to-face. There's nothing like the bumping into someone in the hallway and starting a conversation that leads to something. And that's, I mean, a lot of startups trying to create that digitally, right. but it's not the same. But yeah, there's a there's a dramatic change that's uh, going on. And, you know, people living, uh, working from home. I think it will be good, Sydney, if people have more flexibility. You know, I, my first book was written about rebooting work and talk about how to have the family in your life more and how to have work in your life more and fire the things that don't give you joy, like that commute, you know? Mm -hmm. And we certainly did that with coronavirus. The commute is gone for right now. But there's something about being with people. Like, it was magical to be in your classroom and read the body language of the students. And we were talking about something and one of your students was very moved by it. You could see that he had been moved by it before he spoke up. Uh, so what you don't want to lose is some of the magic that comes from being in person, but maybe we don't need to be in person together all the time. I also think it's interesting that groups that actually get to know each other first and have, you know, already have learned to work with each other, they do super well on video. Whereas when you're meeting somebody for the first time, you don't have. That's actually a really big thing because a lot of people are starting new jobs and new companies, kids graduating from college or switching jobs or what have you. And they're starting. I know my students, almost every job is digital yep. starting right now. And yeah, so you don't have that chance where you really know that you want to grab that cup of coffee, even if it's not going to lead to something specific. It's about building relationships. And we can do that on the phone. How many people haven't had Zoom sessions with family members, you know, cocktail hour and book yep. club and all sorts. So we could do it. But the body language is significant. I mean, I see it in the spring term at Dartmouth, I taught online. And it had certain advantages, actually. Certain things you could do that you could not do face-to-face. But you lose that. You lose something big, which is, again, this nonverbal, just the the humanity, the feeling. And some of it is there's a heat in the room, (laughs) uh, which is why you can't have people in a room because all of us give out these aerosols. And, And it's just something totally different. You know, I know when I teach walking into a classroom, within seconds, I could tell the mood of the class before. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years. So you just know kind of what's going on in a certain level, like a sixth sense. It's impossible, impossible to do when you're looking at a bunch of little faces, you know, on the screen. And you don't even see all of them, right? I mean, there's only so many that, that go on. And I used to, when I was at eBay, Meg Whitman was fabulous at making sure we all sat in cubes, which I had never done before. But the thing that was amazing to me was you couldn't be mad at your peer because they could feel it and you could feel it. Like, even if somebody's not saying something, the tension is there. Whereas when you had your office, you could actually go in and shut the door and and say whatever you wanted to say. And so it created a, a way for us to confront and discuss with each other that tension. But I always felt it was amazing that you didn't, Somebody didn't even have to say anything. It was there, you know, and it was, I don't know if it's just body language or the, the doctor, but it's palpable. And the same is true in a classroom or like, so we shouldn't get ourselves that we're going to get on video. This is far better than what just a phone call is far better, but it's not like being together. 
and, right. and right. reading each other. That's right. Uh, that's an interesting story about you know what being in the cubes does for you, you know, kind of feeling that visceral sense of others. I hadn't quite thought about it that way, but I could see it. But what you're describing also, and maybe that what you said about Mark Benioff, the CEO of, of Salesforce, with the Wednesday town halls for how many people again, just to make sure yeah, we got 50, that? 50,000 people. 50,000 people. Is that a proprietary, I'm just a side note, is this a proprietary technology they use? Zoom can't handle no, it. He, he does it on Zoom. There's a special license on Zoom where all of the executive leadership team and whatever speakers he brings and the board are on, you know, there's probably 30 people on that special chat that they can all see each other and talk. And then everybody else is in look and listen mode only. More webinar formats. It's a, it's a hybrid. Yeah, I was just curious about, about no, that. They moderate questions. And so there's somebody, you know, and they like them. So we let the Q&A section starts with, you know, these are the top of mind questions from people. And, you know, it's right. quite a show. Right. Well, actually, I was talking about, you know, teaching on Zoom. You could use the chat to get very quick feedback or a sense of the class or points of view. And it's painless to do it as a student. It's not like you got to raise your hand in front of everyone and people are going to listen to you. 10 people or 100 people could be writing something in the chat at the same time. It's a big advantage. But what I wanted to ask you about and highlight is communication, what Mark is doing in your example and what you described with the non, what we've been talking about with nonverbals. So communication is always, always important and it creates all sorts of problems when people are not communicating effectively. But I think now under business under COVID, the priority and the emphasis, the need for effective communication is really through the roof and transparency is such a critical, because people are afraid. People, even today, I mean, maybe especially today, you know, here we are in summer of 2020, it's getting worse, not better in a lot of places. Exactly. So, I think it's not just transparency, it's also empathy. Recognizing, we always say, I've always heard all my companies say we care about people, but honestly, you have loved ones dying, you have fear in so many places, and both at Visa and at Salesforce, we always start with please take care of your families, you know, uh, it's important, and take time to take care of yourself. Mark also has created all these wellness sessions, so employees that need, and he brings experts in for meditation or for counseling or for cooking or what like and then he has opened those up to all of his customers as well so hmm. he's like i'm trying to help and we're going to help and we're going to be a community and we're going to you know make everything you know we know where we are is a problem but we're going to make it as good as we can and please take care of yourself and your family before we do anything else and that's something that was always said but you feel it in these times when you're doing all these things and you talk to your people way more. I think if anything, you have more conversations with folks than you usually do when you're in person. You don't get the hallway, you know, aha moment. But if you're explicit, I've talked to a lot of our CEOs and because I'm not commuting two hours up to San Francisco from Los Gatos where I can do some on a call and hopefully not wreck my car. I can use some of that time to actually talk to more people or help more people. And then you can do it in shorter, like if you're doing an hour Zoom call with just two people, that's going to be a long time. But if you do 
a 15 to 20 minute Zoom call, you can get a lot covered and you can do three of those in the same time frame. You're absolutely right about empathy. It's central to so much of what we know about effective leadership. And this is one of those words that sometimes because it's being used a lot now, it starts to lose a little bit of meaning, but that would be a mistake. You know, there are some of the top leaders I could think of talk a lot about empathy and live empathy. Your examples about Mark Benioff, certainly. Satya Nadella at Microsoft has talked a lot about, about empathy as well, and many others. Changing gears a little bit, you've had a chance to work with some really superstar CEOs. And, you know, you mentioned Mark already, Mark Benioff, but also some women CEOs. And there are fewer of those. And so I want to ask you about that. You know, you mentioned Meg Whitman, Marissa Mayer, of course, at Yahoo, and maybe some others as well. And Silicon Valley, as well as pretty much all of corporate America, has been rightly criticized for lack of representation. I'm talking about women to start, but race is even bigger as we've finally begun to say that we've begun to see it is not correct. It's been there to be seen for a long time, but it's starting to somehow permeate into the privileged classes in a way that maybe it hadn't before. And I was reading the other day, I think there are only four CEOs, Fortune 500 companies that are African-American. Four? There was uh, one I, the Wall Street Journal this weekend had an article on the one female black CEO. That's mm-hmm. ridiculous, right? I mean, that's, it's just, we have to do better. And I have not worked, I've been around other female CEOs Back in the day, Carly from the CEO of HP when I was a customer. Carly Fiorina. Yeah, but I've worked directly as a COO for Meg, and then I was the chairman at Yahoo for Marissa. So those were the two I had the most interaction with. And I actually think they were both amazing in their own special different ways because they are different. But I think they had a much tougher time than a male CEO often and didn't get the kind of benefit of the doubt that the male CEO gets, which I'll give you one example of that. We did a lot of M&A at Yahoo when Marissa first started because we didn't have very many mobile engineers and we knew that that was going to be a key part of her strategy. And so she'd buy companies to get the talent. And they didn't talk about it as M&A. People wrote about it and activists talked about it as she's shopping, right? She's got shopping. And then I had a situation one time where I got a call, like my first week as as a chairman, that said, Marissa went to an event yesterday and she had dyed her hair blue. And, you know, you should tell her not to do that. I was like, uh, first of all, I'm thrilled she has hair. I have none. <laughs> and secondly, I don't actually think that's my role to tell her what to do with her hair. But no one's, like, that just was... Yeah, you never hear that. Tell that male CEO, you know, his sideburns are a touch long or something. You should trim them, right? No. You'd never see that. Right. And I'm just using that as an example. There's insidious examples that go on, and they have to rise above that, and they can't let that derail them. But it, it is a hurdle that they have to work with that other CEOs get the benefit of the doubt when they come in. Now, I would also say, you know, the prototypical CEO is a white male over six feet tall. I'm way under six feet tall. So, you know, I have to, and I'm bald and I don't have a full head of hair, but like I got the benefit of the doubt a lot more than a woman did in a lot of places. And it shouldn't be that way. We now, like they're half the population. The same thing is true on race is we have to do more to be more inclusive from the beginning on the race, you know? And we talk about it a lot 
but we aren't making nearly enough progress. We are on boards. We have a lot more women and people of color on boards today than were there historically. And I had a chance to offer, uh, one of my private companies was asking for help on that area. And I was delighted to have a few friends that then gave me, and he was in particular looking for a woman of color, a quality woman of color. And I went to a couple of friends that I know very well that are exactly that, and they're already overboarded. So, but they gave me some great recommendations and he's talking to one of them. I don't know if that will work out, but I sure hope it will. But it should be easy to do that. Just like it's easy, like it's so easy to do the network of people you know and you know, you that we have to do more to open the doors for so many different people. Why is it, uh, Maynard, that Silicon Valley in particular seems to have not just been criticized, but I think it, there's evidence behind it, of this kind of bro culture. You know, it's kind of what we're talking about a little bit, about engineers, and a lot of them are male, of course, not all, but clear majority. And actually, I'm also going to say, maybe this is old news, I don't know, but ageism. You know, it's like uh, if you're in your 20s or 30s, everything's okay. If you're in your 40s, 50s, let alone 60s, that experience is experience in another world. And so who cares about that? It's not going to make sense here. What do you think about that? Like I spend my life, I thought about this a lot when I finished operating, what did I want to do? I spend my life every day, I decided I wanted to spend my life every day with people that wanted to change the world and got out of bed trying to do so. And I wondered if they would let me in because, you know, in my 60s. And it turns out that they will and they appreciate the experience and the capability to solve problems. And I love helping these young people get better. But it's not. There were people that said, no, you know, you're not cool. You know, I'm only going to work with people that look like me. And I think that's what happens in some of these places. People aren't trying to think about themselves as discriminating. They, they're picking friends that they can trust, that they've hung with, that they played games with. And they don't think about it as being exclusionary, just like private clubs in Palm Beach that didn't want to have people of color or Jewish people join, they knew they were being exclusionary. But back then, hopefully all those have changed by now. But most of the time here, it's not like they're trying to be bad about it. They're actually just hanging with people they know and that they like hanging with and are not thinking about we need to be broader in how we add people and that will make us stronger. So every time I check out a company to invest in, I always ask, how are you going to handle this? How are you going to make sure in your first five hires, you have a woman at least and hopefully somebody else of color or, you know, and because if you don't do that, you get behind the curve. And that's really hard to fix a little later on in your culture. We do things at our events where we had Emily Chang, who wrote the book Protopia, come and do a fireside chat with me in hopes of educating our founders and how to get ahead of this. We've had the diversity folks from Stanford come. We talk about it a lot, but there's a lot more to do. And frankly, we don't have, there's just more to do. And we have, we can celebrate that we've come some way, but it's obvious we have a lot more to do. And there's insidious ways to have this happen without, even if it's not intentional, right? As I said, you're just hiring somebody that you used to work with and you know. I always felt like I had built an amazing network and that I could hire the folks that had worked with me before. And I I had to realize that was also an issue. I need to add new, diverse talent everywhere. It's not cool that I just had a network. It was, I felt 
gratified that I had people that wanted to follow me, and that's nice, but that's not enough. So you want to have a following, but you want to add and be inclusive of new thoughts as well. Yeah, and the research on diversity is pretty overwhelming. Diverse teams generally make better decisions than less diverse teams. It's a way of attracting more and diverse talent. And the most commonsensical thing of them all is if you expand the talent pool, from makeup. We're all looking for good talent. How could that be a bad idea? How could that be a bad idea? You know, and you mentioned my book, Super Bosses. I talk a lot about finding talent that's different than, this is what super boss leaders do, finding talent that's different than them. People that could teach them things that they don't necessarily know themselves. Right. And even that mindset is pretty good. That's like a growth mindset, Carol Dweck type mindset that she's written about. And I talk about that in seminars and workshops and in the old days when I actually was face-to-face with people doing work like that. Right. And You know, some of the time people push back and they say, I understand that. I get it. I completely understand what you're talking about, Sid, but I can't find those people. I don't let them get away with that. I just, what year are we in now that you cannot, how, what are you doing? Tell me how you're trying to find people. Yeah. Well, I would just say, first of all, I think you have to always be recruiting. I think too many managers and leaders don't like it and it's uncomfortable for them. And they have to realize that so much of what they do, it's all about talent. So whether you have any openings or not, I think you should always be, you should always know who the top one or two leaders are and every skill set you might have to hire and be soliciting relationships with those folks way before you Mm -hmm. need them. I find it almost amazing. Like that CEO, I love that he had enough trust in me that he asked me to help him, Mm -hmm. but he's doing super well. He has money for a recruiter and I can have him access some of the best recruiters in the planet, but he just has a visceral, many of these startup folks have a visceral reaction about using a recruiter, which is common to, uh, you know, Visa uses recruiters, Salesforce, eBay use recruiters. Like, that's one of the ways you get a broader view into who's out there. And I've got enough of a network that I actually can find different folks, which is fine, but you have to be intentional about it. It's not okay to say, that's hard to find people that are, the truth is there's less candidates in some of those areas than there should be. And we ought to be working to fill that at the bottom of it in. One of the things Visa did uh, in the coronavirus, they end with the racism that's going on. They said that they were going to create a fund of $10 million to help underprivileged kids go to school and then guarantee them, not just get them through school, but guarantee them a job when they got out at an entry-level job into Visa. Now, that's an example of solving systemically pipeline problem. But it's easy for people to say, I can't find the candidates. And that's an excuse. It's not okay. It's not okay. And so we just have to hold people to a higher standard. And then show them the way to do it. I also think you've got to show them the way to do it. So, I mean, sometimes just a lack of creativity. They tell me, yeah, we recruited, you know, Harvard, Yale. Well, okay. What about the other 200 amazing universities, if not more? around? Somebody took a chance on me years ago, and they continue to take chances on me, where I don't have the pedigree that a lot of people have with education. Now I have enough operational experience that people like that. But, you know... Like, I was a risk for somebody to take, and it worked out, I hope, for them. We have to do the same thing. There's a lot more talent. There's more people in the world that can do things. And by the way, they'd be happier with great jobs, great opportunities, and then they go on and do better things in the world. So we should be looking 
for that kind of talent. This is a bigger topic than we're going to give it justice to, but you've made me, in your response in our conversation, making me think about, you know, what is affirmative action and what does it do and what does it not do? And the thing that it does not do is it doesn't go to that next step that you described that Visa is doing with a $10 million program. And when you think about mentoring in organizations, what does mentoring do that's good? Well, there's a lot of things, but what does it not do? It stops at the place where you take somebody's hand and you walk them to see Maynard and you, and you say, Maynard, this young person, you need to know who this person is. Sure. And in other words, you become, you become a sponsor. And that, ta- I mean, it's, that takes effort, takes energy. You're putting your own credibility on the line. So I understand that. But that's what it takes. That's the next step, the required step, I think, if we're going to make any progress on these things. Yeah, and we have to not give it lip service we have to do like when the issue with george floyd happened i was devastated to be honest with you and for several reasons it was horrific what happened but it wasn't unusual which is really the bad thing and there's something about the way it happened and that technology caught it and it was on video we couldn't walk away from it and i know a lot of people wanted to immediately give money and i just felt that wasn't enough like, what can we do? What am I going to do to actually do something differently? And I talked to a lot of friends. Ron Conway is creating a fund to help black entrepreneurs. And I said, you know what? I'll mentor one or two of those every year. When you get ones that you think appropriate, spend my time with them in any way I can. And then I got asked to be a part of a group that is underway that's not yet implemented to work with the San Jose police on making better metrics available on how they handle things when uh, people are there. I just don't think it's enough anymore to feel bad or to just put money in it. We have to take action and we have to do things that are going to make a meaningful difference. And I'm still processing what those things are going to be. And I have read so many new books. There's a different reason why my kids are home with us during this time, my grown kids came back with their pets. You know, we were empty nesters and having the time of our life. And now not so much. I got my 30-somethings here with their pets. For Father's Day, my son bought me a bunch of books that I should read on this. And I like, so I'm going through my own journey on, I always thought of myself as an underdog. I think I started this conversation with that. Yes. I realized that I did have body blows, but I had nobody systemically trying to not be nice to me, like some people of color. Right. And so I'm trying to process all of it and figure out what we, I'm committed to be better. I'm committed for our society to be better. But it's some of the things I've been studying how society, even in California, which is known as a a liberal bastion of the world, we led the world or the country in blocking off real estate to people that weren't white. I don't know if you know that, you know, and that had all these rules about who could live in certain areas and the real estate agents would actually migrate people back and forth between those. And it's like, wow, even after the Civil Rights Act and all that is illegal, they were still doing things here that created communities that didn't have good schools where people of color were most likely to live. That's a systemic issue that isn't going to get fixed in one minute, but we sure need to get on it and stay on it. And my hope I'll get off my rant in just a minute, but uh, my hope is that we figure out how to do this and not let this moment go away, you know, and and just have people paper over it. Because I think that's what happens. It's uncomfortable. 
And you do something and you call it a win. Like I said, you know, I'm going to mentor those. But that's not enough. What else are we going to do? What policies are we going to implement? How are we going to? And by the way, it's not just about people of color. It's about everybody that's discriminated against. How do we level the playing field everywhere? I don't know. We have work to do. I love the way you phrased it. It's not enough to feel bad anymore or to feel sorry. It's not enough. And it's action. And as you say, and then what additional action? In a way, in 2020 America, this is a grassroots effort. There's no you know, national understanding around this at all. In fact, it's probably the opposite. And wouldn't it be something if, and it's been started by the protesters in, in city after city, actually a great personal risk, but it's starting to get to and touch people that have some ability to do at least a little bit about that. I mean, someone like yourself, Maynard, with your network and your ability to do, it's still a small piece that requires a million Maynards and maybe yeah. 10 million others. So I'm hoping, you know, and I'm thinking myself, what else could I be doing? doing. Uh, we, all, we all have to do that, Sydney, right? And when you find good things, I'd love for you to tell me what you found because we have to be learners here. Uh, We're talking a lot about this at Dartmouth, as you'd guess, and the Tuck School. And uh, I'm actually, I started reading a book called The Warmth of Other Suns, S-U-N-S. I don't know if you've read that one. I have not read that one. I'm writing it down. It's by Isabel Wilkerson. She's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and it documents in a highly readable way the Great Migration of black people from the south to the north over literally a 70-year time period. I'm only in the beginning of the book, really, the first 10%. I'm reading on Kindle, so I know my percent, not my chapter. The first 10%. And the life that they left was so difficult, so impossible. And, you know, I'm learning things I didn't know. Of course, we know something about the Civil War, and we know something. I say something specifically, meaning not that much, but something about slavery. But then after slavery, after the Civil War was over, the emancipation, well, you know, black people were allowed to vote. Black people were free. But actually, it's not at all what happened. Well, no, it actually, I was reading the history of Grant a year or two ago, and there was a period of time that there was some of that, that happened immediately. And then Johnson, the president after Lincoln, went in and did and killed it because white people revolted. And that's when the KKK started. Like, and wow, we had a moment there where there was an opening and then we reverted back to all this horrific stuff. And then it was a hundred years later before. And like, when you think about it, was 1964 with the Civil Rights yeah. Act, but even then things didn't change. No. Uh, actually, we're talking in 2020. Many things haven't changed, even though we're so, so, so much better than we were before 1964, let alone in that earlier era. Well, Maynard, it's always a far ranging and fascinating conversation to talk to. It's a real treat. It's going to be a treat for all of my listeners as well. I like to wrap things up with kind of an advice, introspective advice type of question. And I know you've spoken to a lot of groups and you've given a lot of advice, but the advice I want to ask you about is advice to yourself. If you can go back to the 21 year old Maynard and there he is working away at probably three different things, no you and you went over to him now knowing what you know today about the world what would you share with him what would you share with the 21 year old Maynard Webb about you know, if there's one thing you really want to know if there's something you want to think about if there's one bit of advice if there's one thing I would have done or you could do differently or something like that what would that be I think that first of all life is long I didn't think it was long because I thought I was going to die at the same age and my dad died which you know was 46 for him and I'm long past that so that life is long and take a moment to just have more fun, you know, and treat 
people more humanely. In the beginning, I was a very driven, driven man that I felt I had to just get to the next thing. And the more I realized it was about others and not about me, the better it all got for everything, including my career. And that's kind of the philosophy of what you're doing with network and all work you're doing now. And it hasn't been hurting you. you know, people talk about win-win, literally, right? <laughs> well, it actually works. Yeah. Maynard, thanks again for being on the SIDCAST, for talking with us. A real treat for everybody. Yeah, thank you, doctor. It's a pleasure. And thanks for all that you do in the world as well. Appreciate it. Be well. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SIDCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time. <laughs>